0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, I'm joined by Jim Iserman to discuss a major new monograph that surveys his career. It's out from Radius Books just in time for the holidays. Oh, by the way, in addition to a bunch of terrific exhibition catalogs, this year the Modern Art Notes Podcast has featured outstanding books by Tabitha Soren, Mary Beard, Deborah Willis, and Laura Rykovich, biographies of Sam Francis and Francis Bacon by Gabrielle Sells and Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan, respectively, There's also been Deborah Bricker-Balkin's awesome Arthur Dove catalog resume, and heck, my new book too, Emerson's Nature and the Artists. As you finish your holiday shopping, be sure to have a listen. For 40 years, the California-based Iserman has joined sculpture and painting to design and examinations of domesticity and queerness. Last year, the Palm Springs Art Museum presented a survey of his career. Iserman has fulfilled commissions for sites as unalike as football stadiums at the University of Houston and in Arlington, Texas, the place the Dallas Cowboys play, and for Stanford and Princeton universities. His work is in many major art museum collections, including the collections of the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. Iserman, which is one of the most beautiful books I've seen all year, was designed by David Chicky and Matt Patilano. Features an essay by Christopher Knight and a conversation between the artist and John Burtle. It's available from Radius directly and also from IndieBound and Amazon for $60 to $65. Neat bonus. Uh, The book has three covers. You can choose which cover you want if you order it directly from Radius. On the second segment, By Her Hand, Artemisia Gentileschi and Women Artists in Italy 1500 to 1800 at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford. But first, Jim Iseran, after the break. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents the exhibition Milton Avery, curated by Edith Devaney and organized by the Royal Academy of Arts London in collaboration with the Modern and the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Avery is considered one of North America's greatest 20th century colorists. His career fell between the movements of the American Impressionists and the Abstract Expressionists, leaving him to forge a staunchly independent path. This comprehensive exhibition brings together a selection of approximately 70 paintings, from the 1910s to the mid-1960s, that are among his most celebrated. These works typically feature scenes of daily life, including portraits of loved ones and serene landscapes from his visits to Maine and Cape Cod. The color sensibility and balance that run throughout his work had a major influence on the next generation of artists. On view through January 30th in Fort Worth. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022— Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens' fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents I Don't Know You Like That, the bodywork of hospitality. Organized by Sylvie 14, Bemis Center 2019-2021 curator-in-residence, this ambitious group exhibition brings together the works of 18 international artists to explore corporeal hospitality. Hospitality is usually considered a philosophical concept with juridical implications, an ethical concern, or a social-political practice. This group exhibition shifts the focus to consider the stealth work of hospitality on our conceptual, physical, political, and historical understanding of bodies. In the process, it reveals a storied genealogy that points to the extractive intersection of race, gender, class, religion, and value. I don't know you like that, the bodywork of hospitality, excavates this legacy and imagines other more than human hospitable modalities. The public is invited to an opening reception on December 9th at 6 p.m. Central Time with 14 and a number of exhibiting artists. An artist panel and performance will take place on December 11th at 2 p.m. Central Time. Exhibiting artists Ingrid Bachman, Jean-Charles Dukayak, and Bridget Moser will be in conversation with curator Sylvie 14 about their artistic practice and the work on VIEW. Following the panel discussion, Jean-Charles Ducayac will perform Talk, which recombines several works in the exhibition into new living constellations. The panel discussion and performance will also stream online at twitch.tv slash Center. Find additional details, including Bemis Center's COVID safety policy and requirements for in-person attendance, and RSVP at bemiscenter.org events. And we're back. Jim Iserman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. As I prepared to talk with you, I looked around for a way that would introduce your genre-bending practice right away, you know, the kind of thing an interviewer likes to do. And so this might be kind of weird. Here's where I landed. So we're in 1982. You had a really good 1982, by the way. (laughs) You have exhibitions at Artist Space in New York, in a Disneyland-adjacent Best Western Hotel called Stovall's Inn of Tomorrow show that will later go on view in an L.A. White Cube-style space. And you created the video sets for The Cutting Edge, which, because I'm a pop culture idiot, I had to Wikipedia to learn was an early MTV program that provided the first TV appearances for groups like the Red Hot Chili Peppers and R.E.M. You made the video sets for the appearances of The Bangles, of whom I've heard, and The Three O'Clock, who, not being a music person, I hadn't heard of. So, in hindsight... This flurry of activity in 1982 at the beginning of your career seems like a mindful, bicoastal statement about about genre busting. Did you intend it to be that way? Is that what you were trying to do as you started out as a young artist? Oh, my
1: God. Uh, No. (laughs) That was a very funny moment because almost everything I had made the previous three years was up at the same time. So the show that was at Artist Space was actually a show that I did in 81 in LA. Yeah. And all the work that was part of those two music sets were actually things I made the summer after grad school, so like 1980. And then the most recent work was the show at the mo- in the motel. So it was like three years of work that was, you know, kind of all up in the same year. So it was this kind of interesting moment and it showed this progression From this work that was completely derivative and was about, you know, kind of representing these motifs or things from like do it yourself furniture books to the motel show, which was the first body of furniture work that I thought was more or less original because it was after, you know, kind of devouring all these vernacular styles and then making something specific for this, you know, location.
0: So the 1982 by coastal all at once of it might have been accident, but surely, at least I imagine you were aware that you were dissolving design and decoration and craft and art into a singlehood.
1: Yeah, I, it was funny. I, you know, I went to Cal Arts for grad school in the late seventies. At the time, there was you know it was you know they were famous for having a program called post studio art. So it was all about the work driven by these conceptual ideas and, you know, especially for the grad program there, there were very few people making anything that could be recognized as traditional objects. So that was extremely freeing for me. And being new to California, having come from the Midwest, I was completely fascinated with everything that I thought of as being Californian. And so a lot of this came out of my kind of excavation of the recent history of California and sifting through that and putting it into some kind of order. And I didn't have any problem thinking about design or architecture or furniture as art because the definition of art was so blurred and so conceptual, for lack of a better word, at Arts, and not tied to you know traditional object making.
0: I think today in 2021 as we're recording this you know we're we're a, a generation plus away from big male minimalism of 1963ish and forward and looking back on it it seems pretty clear to us now that big male minimalism had a real relationship to design and decoration so much so that one of its motivating artists Created a kind of architecture studio and gave it half of his own name, right? Clarence Donald Judd and the whole Clarence Judd thing and Marfa. Do you remember being interested in minimalism and and addressing it and tweaking it when you were in school and getting started in the early eighties?
1: Not so much when I was in school. You know, maybe ten years out of school, I was. That's what I was very interested in. It was kind of a funny progression with the first decade of work that I made getting out of school because it followed this strange chronology that was much more based on what I was finding in thrift stores or swap meets or, you know, things like that, as opposed to looking at the chronology of art, because I had this interest in the way things are discarded, usually right before they come back into style. And so the earliest work I made, like the motel show, those pieces all sat on this edge between being completely out of style and coming back in again. And so there was this kind of friction between what it was you were looking at. Were you looking at something that was completely horrifying and ugly, or were you looking at something that you thought was hip and you know, having this other kind of meaning? And because those styles have gone in and out since then, it's lost that kind of edge, and it has a, a very different kind of you know existence in terms of that whole chronology but that first 10 years it the the kind of shift was based on these kinds of changes and images that i was following and me trying to put them in some kind of order because there wasn't all the guidebooks that there are today in terms of mid-century or post-war design and then you know for me it's all all of those things all of the design and architecture and furniture issues are inseparable from the art that was being made at the same time. And it's very funny because now that I teach, that's how I teach. Like, I won't show them art without showing them the architecture and design of the same period, because in my mind, they're always tied together somehow.
0: One of your earliest groups of work that kind of cohered into a single installation was a 1986 group of paintings of flowers. And... Certainly, there are paintings that reference 1950s design, they reference hard-edge painting of the the John McCracken, Carl Benjamin line, and then, of course, there's Andy Warhol. So you talk in the book, the, the new book from Radius, about paying attention to a number of things Warhol was doing in the 70s and 80s. So you clearly knew you were taking on Warhol as directly as possible. Why did you want to? Hubris of youth, you thought you had something to add. Why was it such an immediate engagement?
1: <laughs> That's kind of a hard question. I mean, I, Warhol was always one of my idols. I was very interested in his work, the flower paintings, you know, because they were, you know, they, they had a different kind of banality. And, the, you know, I, I didn't realize how many hundreds of them he had produced till I read the Gopnik book last year that he made something like 450 flower paintings, which is to me is really mind-boggling in every size and shape, or not every shape, but so many sizes, you know. I love the kind of, you know, price point or merchandising of something like that. For me, for the flower paintings, I mean, one of the things that I think is really interesting looking back on on it now is that there was just about zero editing of those images. I made every Flower image I could think of. Almost all of them were based on things I found. You know that whether it was the flower power sticker or a keychain. I say this most people don't know what I'm talking about, but there was a very particular type of inflatable clothes hanger or Kleenex box that was this weird vinyl, and all the flowers that were printed on that were a very particular kind of loopy flower, which I reproduced on a couple of those paintings. And I made as many as I needed to fill the exhibition space for that show. So even though I pretend that they were the first paintings I ever made, they were really conceived of as, you know, this ensemble or, you know, covering the wall. They were double hung and basically looked like wallpaper, which is also very Warhol-like.
0: Yeah, you you talked in the interview in the book about... Loving the Warhol Whitney installation with the paintings on top of the Warhol wallpaper, the cows.
1: Yeah, which then I was, you know, able to do that in 1999 uh, with the 15-year survey show that we did.
0: Yeah, we will get to some of that. One of the things about the flower, your flower paintings that (laughs) cracks me up in kind of a knowing way is that somehow they are a queering of Warhol. Somehow they are a queering of a queering. And queering as a word, as a verb, I should say, has come into common usage, especially in the art world, over the last 20 years. So in the early 80s, you probably weren't thinking of queering as a verb.
1: Sorry, I was going to say it was still an epitaph then.
0: Yeah, yeah. So how did you think in your own mind or in your own conceptualization of making Warhol's gay flowers, somehow gayer.
1: (laughs) I think because I came at it more from the viewpoint of what I thought was interior decoration. And for me growing up in Wisconsin, it seemed like the only viable role models for out gay people were hairdressers and interior decorators. So I thought the gayest approach possible or the you know queerest approach possible would be from that angle and to think about all of these things as decoration as opposed to painting. And this is something I talk about in the interview this idea of something almost presenting itself as art, you know, presenting itself as interior decoration pre- pretending to be art, pretending to be interior decoration. And you know it goes back to this whole Thing about camp, which is very foundational to me for the way I looked at things. I first read Susan Sontag's notes on camp when I was a grad student. Nancy Dwyer was teaching at CalArts, and she was like six months older than me and had us read this essay in 1979, I guess. And I never read anything that so you know, moved me. And it gave me such permission to pursue everything I was interested in in terms of rescuing things from thrift stores or from oblivion and and trying to reinvest them with this, you know, knowledge or signage or something that would communicate to like-minded people. And that's something that's been in my work from the very beginning. It's very funny because with my grad students now, we've been reading a lot of queer theory. I actually have a queer, well, I didn't start. I and a couple of my students and ex-students have a queer theory reading club, book club and you know there there just wasn't the language to talk about work that way when i was certainly when i was a student and in the 80s in la any gay work or queer art had a lot more to do with desire of men's bodies and not about interior decoration and so there there wasn't really a place for this work to be talked about that way and you know that was one of the huge goals for me about this book was to finally situate all this work in a language that's available now that I was unable to speak, you know, 30
0: years ago. I'm not sure I can quite put it into words, but but your work, I, I guess jumping off from what you said about Sontag, you know, is full of doubling back, doubling back, referencing, doubling back again, winking, and something about the way the book unfolds, whether it's the way the images are sequenced or something else reinforces that. So, you know, we get to see a flower painting and then maybe another flower painting, and then we see the room of flower paintings. And the work exists often, and this is true throughout the book, as an individual artwork and then in situ in a way that winks at the artwork, that winks at decoration or design, and then takes you back to the artwork. So it, it, it plays out, I don't know, there's a real narrative across the book, which is a lot of fun. Yeah,
1: it's very funny. I mean, I love the way the book ended up coming together. You know, something that was really important to me about the book was to have this strict chronology somewhere so that if you want to know the sequence of this work, it was there. But what was very funny about both the essay and the interview is they're completely non-chronological and they jump all over the place. But then you get to the plates, which are a pretty strict chronology, and then the illustrated chronology, which obviously is is super strict. And so the like you said, the images and the ideas repeat, you know, four times through the book. So if you actually go through it, I think really nice how these things are repeated and said in different ways as a whole is I think very informative in terms of how the work developed and you know, what I think about it and what other people thought about it at the time. And that's also something I was really, really wanted to happen with the essay and interview because Christopher Knight has been writing about my work since the mid 80s. And so if there's any, I mean, he was my number one person to write this essay. And I'm so grateful and thrilled that he agreed to do it because I just thought there's nobody who, there's nobody else who lived through it with me who, you know, experienced the development and changes. And then the interview is done by John Bertel, who was a grad student of mine, and I really wanted the work discussed through that lens as well, to somebody who didn't live through it but could talk about it in a kind of queer language of 2020 and, you know, to have these two two very different ways of looking at it. And between the two of them and everything else, it gives such a complete idea of what I was trying to do.
0: As the 80s come to an end, you you mark 1989 with shag paintings, wall-mounted works that are half what looks like shag carpet and half enamel on panel. And so there are works that do a bunch of things at once. Craft, because they aren't shag carpet, they're handmade to look like shag carpet, if you will. There's that doubling thing again, or doubling back again. Craft, decoration, confusing something we... St- Step on with something that's on a wall, that's with a painting, which is something we'd never step on. And so, what strikes me about the Shag paintings is that everything you'd been doing in, in your practice, sometimes for music video sets and sometimes for a white cube space, comes together at a single time in a single object. Did you have as a goal summarizing or joining, if you will? disparate interests in individual objects? Because that's sure how they feel like to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I definitely did. By the late 80s, I had kind of worked through this idea of how furniture should exist and just finish up with the flower show for a second. That was the last gallery show I did that had furniture in it because I wanted the furniture to function. And so, you know, all the furniture that accompanied the flower paintings functioned as gallery furniture. So you could sit in that circular seating group and look at the paintings. And so you're right, the, the shag paintings were about how to put all of those ideas into a single object. And they're funny because you know they're kind of didactic in that way, but they're super physical in person because the larger ones are eight by eight feet. And so if you stand in front of it, you know it pretty much fills your field of vision. And half of it's this hard edge painting And the other half almost feels like that painting's out of focus. You know, so there's this very, very physical experience. You know, I was super interested in op art at the time, which optimistically was this thing you didn't need to know anything about, that it it happened in your retina, and that was the complete experience, right? And so I was interested in that, I was interested in, in the ideas of super graphics, these These patterns or logos or shapes that could, you know, point you in a certain direction or, you know, locate you or more optimistically a way that art could exist in everybody's day to day existence. I was interested in all those things and I was interested in it being singular objects. And it was the first time I actually had to do an enormous amount of pre-planning for each one because I needed to know how many square inches of each color of yarn and, you know, all these very pragmatic things, which have always been a big part of my work. But with these, it 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 gets forefronted a little bit more.
0: What about hard edge painting had interested you? I guess the kind
1: of cleanness of it all. For me, it's the closest thing to design or illustration. You know, like, I'm much more interested in the kind of sign-like quality of hard edge painting as opposed to something realistic. It was funny. I mean, and the other day, Christopher asked the question about the flower paintings being the only representational work I've ever done. And it was funny because I think of almost everything I do as representational, or I guess I think of the flower paintings as being as much objectified or object, a non-objective as the other paintings. So for me, they, they're kind of the same thing. But I think of these more abstract patterns as something three-dimensional or something going in front and behind something or as, you know, representing something I've seen the same way the flower paintings do. But they're all simplified to this point of being a logo or a pattern or, you know, it's just the kind of language that I recognize or speak, I guess.
0: After the shag paintings, you run away from painting and you start making textiles. And I want to talk about those, but before we do, why did you stop painting?
1: There's actually a body of work in between there, which are the stained glass windows. And gosh, I I never thought of it as running away from painting. I became more and more interested in how materials force you to create patterns in a different way. So the shag paintings, one of the reasons that they were that big is they needed a really big canvas to do those latch hook the rug half of it right so if it was much smaller you couldn't have done a definable shape right so it needed to be pretty big so that you could stair step around a corner and have it look like it was round as opposed to you know something very awkward and so i you know did this kind of step-by-step thing where i went through three or four different materials to force me to construct patterns in slightly different ways. And the first ones were the stained glass windows, which were this kind of crazy labor-intensive thing. And if you've ever tried to cut glass, it's very difficult to cut a shape that protrudes into a piece of glass because the, the cut will just keep going, right? It'll break through. So you then have to create that shape out of multiple pieces instead of one. Very irregular shape so it made me think a whole lot about how that works and so how, how I would divide this up you know very pragmatic things and then about how big they could be without having internal supports and I spent a lot of time figuring that out and came up with this you know three by three foot shape but then the big thing was how to display them because you know windows are usually installed in a, in a you know some kind of wall right? and when these were exhibited they were hung perpendicular to the wall so we could light one side of it so you could see one side with light on its face and one side with the light coming through it which was really different and i chose the glass because of its different texture as well as its color so the the half with the light on its face you saw the, the different smoothness or roughness of the glass and these things are impossible to photograph and You know, I don't have anything that really shows that, but they had a very different kind of physical presence. In photographs, you just see the light coming through them, and they seem more ethereal than, you know, they're a little bit more visceral in person. But then, you know, moving to the textiles was just another step away from that. So doing these hand pieced, basically patchwork quilt tops that were never backed or quilted was another way of Of using all these different pieces to create an overall pattern, but they were sewn together instead of soldered together, and it was something you could fold up and take with you. Whereas the stained glass windows were so difficult to transport. So, I have all these kind of you know ridiculous pragmatic reasons why I moved from one thing to the other, just to you know solve one problem that was unsolvable in the previous medium.
0: You know, I say you ran away from painting, but of course, some of those textiles are, are torn from paintings. There's a 1996 textile called or known as Untitled Rug that is, you know, a wink and a nod at Frank Stella, for example. And I want to raise two works from this period in particular. One is a 1997 sculpture called Cube Weave. We'll have an image of it on manpodcast.com, of course. It's a a 52-and-a-half-inch square cube of colored, and I don't know if the word is checked cotton. I mean, it's sort of plaid. It's sort of, I don't know, plaid checked. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's definitely a plaid, and I don't know if I'm using the word checked the right way or not, but sort of that too. So the relationship between your cube weave. And cubes that Larry Bell started making in 1963, and that minimalism sprinted toward almost immediately thereafter, is unavoidable. And of course, there's a long history of minimalists and anti minimalists like Jackie Windsor doing cubes. Why did you make a cube? Because <laughs> you uh, will go on to make many of them.
1: Yeah, well, it was it was very funny. Well, I was I spent a couple of years you know hand weaving fabric. The first ones were just I mean the loom was a i guess it was a 56 or 60 inch wide loom so i every one i made was as wide as possible and after making a number that were just these squares that and i have to be clear all the weaving is a balanced weave which means the warp and the weft are of equal strength in the pattern so all the patterns are ones you can create doing that so it's not a tiny Warp where you add all these colors and you don't you don't see the warp anymore. You see you just see what's been added So these are you know of equal weight in the pattern and so I was working through all these Different patterns that you could create that way and thinking about you know, what would be the logical? What would be you know? What would be the logical shape you could cover with this and I made a couple pieces that were more I guess Furniture or uh, domestic shapes like I made a a big round bolster And I made a flat kind of, you know, futon-like pillow. And, you know, they were okay, but I wanted something, you know, that was more sculptural. And the studio I was in at that time was 40 feet long. And I figured out if I, you know, when you when you set up the loom, you have to pull all the, the yarn out in front of you. And if I ran the yarn the entire length of the studio, I could weave basically like a 30 or 35 foot long piece of fabric. So those large cube weaves, which are 52 by 52 by 52, are actually made from one piece of woven fabric that's just cut once and they fit around the cube, you know, two kind of C-shaped sections, if you can imagine. And I was very interested in working with that kind of rainbow pattern. So it was the six primary colors and where the like stripes, the six colors run in both directions. And where they meet, they create a pure version of that color. And the other ones are all those, the, you know, one color or two different colors together. So it's, it's more of this kind of plaid or, you know, I don't know what the, this is another technical term we, we should probably look up. <laughs> but so you got this, you know, it was, you know, almost like this weird kind of color theory, you know, side of the, each yes. cube. But, you know, having made one, I figured out how to flip the colors as I was doing it so that each band of color went around all four sides in each direction. So the first cube doesn't do that. The second one does it perfectly. And then the, what was it, eight smaller ones I made since then, or sequentially to that, all did it. So with all my work, this is kind of weird learning curve where I cannot hypothesize how it's going to work without actually making it. And then each one informs the next. But yeah, these clearly had this funny reference to minimalism, you know, whether Christopher called it a, you know, a slip cover from minimalism. Some people call it a tea, tea cozy. You know, for me, it was just like, how, you know, like how faggy can you make a Tony Smith cube or a Larry Bell cube? and make something that is a kind of response to the masculinity of of what we think of as minimalism in the most cases.
0: Yes, and in that way, maybe they're most of all a riff on Robert Morris's box with the sound of its own making, carpentry being a, a kind of a stereotypical male thing. And that work is from 61, so a couple of years before Larry Bell's first Cube in 63. I, I enjoyed hearing you use the word funny there a moment ago. Because the, the other works in this, many of the other works in this series, if you will, are hilarious. There is a giant pill called Capsule, which, which you know, is basically a happiness pill. And, and there is a donut, um, or there are donuts. So that within this group of work are all these kind of jokes about California, <laughs> especially the donuts. I've never been anywhere that thinks donuts are as important as California thinks donuts are important.
1: I've got to say, there's always this kind of se- crazy serendipity with these things, right? So the the big square rug or the big you know, rectangular rug you mentioned was the first one of these braided fabric pieces. And I made it for a two-person show with Jorge Pardo. And Jorge and I had lots of mutual friends in the mid-90s. And my gallerist, Richard Tejas, thought, oh, it would be a really great idea for you to do a two-person show. And I thought, oh, you know, somehow we're going to collaborate or, you know, do something. And the first date for the show kind of came and went because there was no, you know, kind of meeting of the minds about how this was going to work. And by that point, I was getting to know Jorge and his work a little bit better and realized I was just going to have to decide what I wanted to do and live with what his reaction was going to be, because it was definitely not going to happen the other way around. So I approached it very competitively and thought, oh, I'll make this you know, 300-square-foot braided rug. And Jorge was like, oh, that's great. I've always wanted to make a rug, too, so we'll have two rugs together. So I made this rug, and two weeks before the show, Jorge came over to my my studio with all these carpet sample books and picked out this really gross kind of oldish green wall-to-wall carpeting, which was the perfect color to go with my rug. And so the gallery was wall-to-wall carpeted, And then my rug just came in and laid on top of it. So it was honestly the best two-person show I've ever been in because it was about what what was different about the way we work as opposed to what was the same. And, you know, it was, you know, really fantastic. But to do that piece, to buy the amount of fabric I needed, I had to go into downtown L.A. and buy it by the bolt from these fabric jobbers. So I ended up with all this extra... You know beautiful heavy cotton twill and so the whole time i'm making this braided rug i'm trying to think what is a geometric shape that i can braid where you start you know from one end and the braid ends when it meets again or you know and so the donuts were the first ones i did but i braided them over these truck tire inner tubes which were this very rigid ring but when i deflated them they kind of collapse and look much more like donuts than like some kind of ring. And so I I was exhibiting them in in Italy, so we shipped them there unstuffed and I stuffed them there and they that's how they ended up with the shape that they did. So, and I think much more, you know, interesting as a type of donut or whatever other sh- shape you might imagine looking at that hole. And then the The capsule shape was what I did with all the leftover fabric. So the pattern of that is much more like a rag rug where the colors add and subtract and you get this kind of overall speckling of color. And that was simply taking every piece of fabric I had left, tearing it into the the strips, and then counting how many I had of each color and coming up with a system where they were added In a sequential way. So you got this overall pattern. And I really love that kind of result. Like for me to sit and think, Oh, I want this kind of heathered speckled pattern. I would never do that. I, I needed to come up with some kind of system that determined this for me, which is, you know, this kind of funny thing back and forth between this kind of domestic interior design ideas versus. A much more kind of midwestern pragmatism about economy of materials.
0: You know, so we've just talked a bunch about all these things you made using traditional art making practices in traditional art making forms, often with your own hands. And yet, by the end of the 1990s, as we as we pivot into the 21st century, all of a sudden you start making works that come out of industrial processes. And, I, and I'm going to name a couple here even though I honestly couldn't define them, <laughs> like thermal die-cut vinyl and vacuum-formed ABS, which are plastics. So in terms of the materials you were using, I mean, that's just like going from riding a bicycle to driving a semi. I mean, it just seems to me like like just a, a real shift. So what happened that got you interested in moving from handsy Craftsy to industrial and industrial-derived?
1: There's one thing I guess I should say about all that handiwork. You know, if you didn't live through this, I don't think you would be aware of this. But there was so much work being made in the 90s that was all about having somebody else
0: make it. Minimalism forward, right?
1: Well, yeah, but it was was, a lot of it was tied to I mean, there was a number of artists who did it in the 80s and 90s. But the idea that you would farm something out, um, not so much to a manufacturer, but just to somebody who could do it better than you could whether it was some kind of craft person or whatever. But there was this kind of acceptance about it. And for me, it was almost this kind of opposite acceptance where I had to accept how much I enjoyed making these things and that I didn't know enough about it to tell somebody what it was I wanted them to do. I could only do it myself and learn what the options were that way. But what happened in the late 90s, the first you know, thermal die-cut vinyl piece I did was when the survey show came to the Santa Monica Museum of Art.
0: 1999.
1: Yeah, and Carol Ann Clonorides was the chief curator at the time, and she really wanted something to set that exhibition apart from the other six venues that the show traveled to. And that space still had all the steel divisions in the prefab building, so it was kind of a natural system to come up with a pattern that would change at each one of the, one of these divisions and it was kind of amazing i think actually carol ann is the person who found the manufacturer to make these and then i'm still working with that manufacturer today whenever i pull one of these out for an, a group exhibition and or if i'm doing a new vinyl piece which i sometimes do and you know it was the beginning of me i don't know what the right word is but it's you know, kind of boiling down some of these ideas into singular or very few modular elements that would create this repeating pattern. And so they were kind of they were much more simple than they than they appeared because the repeating pattern was seemingly very complex, but often it was made out of one module that was simply turned or repositioned in a way that that made the pattern shift or repeat in a different way. And so that vinyl, the one for the Santa Monica Museum was the very first one. The second one was for the Magazon in Grenoble. And it was this, you know, part of it was like, how do I deal with these incredibly gigantic spaces? There was over 10,000 square feet of wall space there. And I wanted something that would cover, a pattern that would cover that space and never repeat. So it was, we, it was, Six different shapes made in six different colors and the shapes and the colors were added in two competing systems and within this 10,000 square feet it never exactly repeated. I didn't know if it would work but it did and part of it had to do with just the change in heights of of the walls. I mean there were so many variables that nothing ever lined up the same way twice. And then what followed that is the beginning of me doing these public commissions. That's when I really went all in with working with outside manufacturers, which completely changed my studio practice, you know, within five years.
0: We'll get to one of those in a minute. But before we do, I want to make a stop at the modular walls screens, if you will, that you started making around 2005. There's a long history of painted screens in art and decorative art. If we go back a few hundred years in one direction from California, there's the trans-Pacific discourse between Latin American colonial art and Asian art that includes painted unfolding screens. If we go in the other direction from California, there's, of course, the French decorative tradition, lots of artists, including Vuillard and Matisse, painted modular walls or screens. So I think I'm asking why screens? Why why did you want to do these modular walls? And is it because painting is beginning to nudge its way back in a little bit?
1: Uh, there's it's kind of a complicated answer. There's there's a couple of things. I wouldn't have known any of the things you just mentioned. What I would have been. Well, I let me I'm, let me
0: let me jump in real quick, though. I, 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 right around 2005, some of those Latin American colonial painted screens that were informed by Asian art were on view in L.A. I,
1: I don't doubt that. I was already out in Palm Springs by then. But I was super interested in the kind of screening system you would see all over L.A. to disguise an outdated building. Like I was very interested in that. I was also very interested in the concrete you know, block screen walls, which were all over Palm Springs. And I bought a house out here in 97 and moved out full time in I think it was 2000 or 2000. 2001 and so I was looking at those but I was also looking at maybe somebody like Harry Bertoia who did screens you know and here's an artist who was a a furniture designer probably equally well known for his furniture design as for his artwork and I'm not sure where he ranks today but at that at the time I was looking at him was kind of I don't know how Seriously, people took the work, but with along with everything mid-century, it's been completely reevaluated.
0: Big retrospective at the Nasher Sculpture Center in early 2022. Yeah,
1: so I mean, it's really fantastic. You know, in the late 90s, you could get that stuff for a song because nobody quite knew how to look at it or what world it really existed in. So those were the things I was looking at. The other issue was is when I first started doing the commissioned works, I thought, oh, this is going to make my life so much more simple because I don't need to do gallery shows anymore. I'm just going to do these public works and cut out the middleman. And then I realized nobody knows when you do these big commissions. I mean, you might get a very expensive prominent commission and it doesn't necessarily lead to another commission if you don't have gallery shows going on at the same time. And maybe this is simplified. Maybe this doesn't happen for everybody but I felt I, it put even more pressure on me to continuing to do gallery shows in order to keep this other you know, side hustle going. And so I started to then make by hand the things that I was considering having made industrially. And it coincided with, with me getting this job at UC Riverside. They had never had a sculpture department, and in 2003, they hired myself and Charles Long to set up this sculpture area. And all of a sudden I had this fantastic wood shop to work in. So those two painted wooden screens that you mentioned are the result of having access to this incredible shop where I could make all these parts and then bring them home to my studio and paint them and put them together. And then this studio work then starts doing the opposite thing and forming the commission works as well. And several years later, I made a, a screen wall that was very much inspired by this, but it was rotomolded polyethylene medallions sandwiched between bronze anodized laser cut aluminum screens, you know, so it was ended up being this very funny thing where there's this, you know, kind of cross pollination between what what I was making in the studio and what I was having made for commissioned works.
0: One of your biggest and probably my favorite of your commissioned works comes along in 2010. It's the enormity you made for the Dallas Cowboys football stadium in Arlington, Texas. It has a corporate name. They're not a sponsor of the show. We're skipping right by that. (laughs) It's absolutely an amazing object. And one of the things that's so spectacular about it is its sighting. It It is surrounded by giant concrete ramps and supports an utilitarian building infrastructure of a sort of industrial and anti-human sort which of course makes it a great metaphor for the game of football itself and then there's your work which you know fills an entire wall surrounded by all this concrete and your work is sensual and tactile and alive even though it like everything around it is made out of an industrial material the work of yours is made out of what is called vacuum formed polystyrene polystyrene is a plastic. Long way of asking, was the site important to you? And I don't mean the stadium per se, but I mean more specifically all of that concrete and what it was doing.
1: Oh, yeah, I absolutely love the site. I went to, you know, I mean, they sent me all the plans and I did this kind of loose proposal and then I got to do the site visit and look at it. And, you know, it's fantastic because those concrete ramps are pedestrian ramps. And if you, you know traverse these ramps, you get all the way up to the cheap seats. So the idea that you know, people coming and going would have these multiple views of this wall, which was 40 feet high and over 100 feet long. There is a kind of relationship to the human height of a standard human and the module, uh, the module which was made up of 36 panels, And then opposite this wall, which was slightly convex. So this, there's already this sense of the wall breathing. And then there's the, these ramps, and then opposite the ramps is a whole wall of glass with a very complex grid, you know, that holds all these things in place. And so there's the complexity of the window glass wall has a funny relationship to the complexity of all of my panels, which was something like 3,000 panels, vacuum panels. I was very much interested in the site, and. I was interested in the whole idea. I mean, the, the funny thing about the Cowboys Stadium is they'll rent it out for anything. So literally, you know, literally the week after we installed it, they had a monster truck rally in there and I got a call. How do we get all the dirt off of your piece? You know, and so I thought that was incredible. So and all the, pa- all the panels had a coax cap, which is a very shiny cap. So they're they're very easily dustable. So it wasn't a problem, you know, getting all the, the dust that the trucks rose from driving across whatever sand they put down in the middle of the stadium for the rally.
0: It's it's an awesome piece. And anybody who's ever in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex should go do the stadium art tour. There is a ton Maybe, maybe 15 or 20 artists, just terrific stuff everywhere from the luxury suites to the concourses. Painting comes back in your work in full force in the mid-2010s with a series of works in which you lay latex paint down on milled MDF panel. So it's not just that you're using paint again. It's that you're using the historical language of painting. The primary colors plus green, which was, of course, at one point believed to have been a primary color. Why did you let paint back in in the mid in the mid 2010s?
1: You know, in the in the arts and the beginning of the the 2010s, I I was actually working on multiple multiple public commissions at the same time, and so it, it the funny thing it was it completely relieved me of feeling like I had to reinvent the world in my studio. And so it let me kind of return to painting in a way that was kind of undeniably painting. And so for the first time ever, I mean, all the paintings I made in the 90s were just industrial enamel house paint on wooden panels that I made in my driveway. And so in the 2000s, I started having custom supports made with canvas stretched over a wooden panel with smooth coat gesso on it. And they were, on the one hand, very undeniably paintings, but on the other hand, th- this paint that you're mentioning, I was at the very beginning, I was using a very high-end Belgian house paint that had otherwise unavailable colors to choose from. At the beginning, they had a relationship with the Pantone chip colors, where you could order the colors based on any Pantone chip number. The paintings you mentioned was actually from a chip book of British standard colors, and so they were super saturated. And the ones you mentioned have a CNC cut surface, because so many of the paintings were about using the same pattern and assigning different colors to the shapes, and what that would do to the pattern or, you know, perception of the painting. And I wanted to make that more literal or more, yeah, more literal because the, the divisions between each color was actually a line cut into the wooden surface. And there was so much paint painted on them with all the paintings that I make are like that. They're, they're not at all the kind of you know, clean, hard edge painting they appear in reproduction. In person, you see the application of every brushstroke. And so they all have a physicality that's lost in reproduction. But these CNC cut surfaces are the the ones that are maybe the most like that because I didn't go to great lengths to paint the gutter between each one of these shapes. So you see both colors kind of sloshing in there in some places where there's not even any paint. I don't think anybody ever really knew quite what to make of those paintings. I made them for a couple of years and I still have every single one of them, which is, I can't, I can't say that about any other body of work I've made.
0: <laughs> I want to close by talking about a series of red, white, and blue paintings you made starting, I think, in 2017. And I don't know if all of them are six-sided, but a bunch of them are six-sided. And they're reprising, if you will, a six-sided shape that Larry Bell used to make paintings even before he started making his cubes. So starting around 1960 or so. And these paintings are red, white, and blue, which are pretty loaded colors in American art two questions. First, are you so interested in Larry Bell's work? And have you been that you've been bouncing around it for 30 years? Or are am I just noticing coincidences?
1: I'm a big fan of his work, but I'm not, I have to say, I'm embarrassed to say I'm not aware of the work that you're talking about. So yeah, when we hang up, I'm going to go try and find it. But well there's two things I, i've i've done red, white, and blue paintings ever since the flower paintings there's a, there's a red white and blue flower painting with the whole paintings which we we didn't really talk about there were six patterns that I made four paintings of each one, and each one of those sets had a red, white and blue painting so it's something i've i'm interested in the idea of Recognizable groups of colors, whether it's primary colors or red, white, and blue. With a lot of my work, I don't feel like I'm inventing the palette. I'm like recognizing a palette and, you know, presenting it. But for these paintings that you're mentioning, they're all based on the axonometric perspective of a cube. And the work I had made just previously were the stacked cubes, which were these, you know, sculptures where each of the six sides was the same repetitive module. And it was a roto molded polyethylene module. And it was only by flipping half of them that they could bolt together and create this freestanding object. And they did it in a way that you could actually stack multiple ones of them on top of each other. And it's the first time I actually took an industrial material that I'd worked with in a commission, and then used it to make work for a gallery show. So usually the, usually the gallery work is kind of a handmade version of, of something industrial, but this was actually doing that. But the pragmatic problem was these, these shapes had to meet in a certain way that they supported each other. Whereas the red, white, and blue paintings, they represent these red or blue bars on the six sides of a cube, but because it's a painting and or representation or perspective, they don't have to support themselves in you know free stand, as a freestanding sculpture. And they were very it was very funny. It was a idea. I had I spend my summers at a place where I have a studio, but it's it's not particularly conducive to making sculptures. And so I spent the summer there working on these drawings and trying to figure out what I was gonna make when I got back into my you know home-based studio. And I came up with the schematics for these red, white, and blue paintings. Meanwhile, I've been talking with Brooke Hodge about doing a show with the Palm Springs Art Museum and their architecture and design center, which is a repurposed glass pavilion that had been a savings and loan. So the idea of having these paintings which were depicting a transparent cube being exhibited in a glass cube seemed like you know the perfect home for them. So the system I was working with was a finite number of solutions. And so there were 12 solutions for this problem I set for myself. So I made those 12 paintings and the exhibition design accommodated them.
0: Jim Iserman, thanks very much. <laughs> Thank you. Point of Departure, 1958 to Present at Sheldon Museum of Art draws its title from a 1958 jazz recording by Andrew Hill that both exemplifies and defies its time. The exhibition surveys the evolution of abstraction from the late 1950s, after the first wave of artists associated with abstract expressionism, to the present. The artists featured in Point of Departure embrace the primacy of their materials using visual language rooted in observation. Works by Tony Bishara, Ross Blechner, Lisa Corinne Davis, Ron Gorchov, Carmen Herrera, Norman Lewis, Jill Nathanson, Odili Donald Odita, Larry Poons, Mavis Pusey, Stanley Whitney, Sue Williams, William T. Williams, Terry Winters, and others show fluid interplay between abstraction and depictive references. Point of Departure is on view at Sheldon Museum of Art from August 13th through December 31st, 2021. For more information, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina has reopened to the public with a new exhibition in relation to power, politically engaged works from the collection. The exhibition focuses on ways that artists comment on and often vehemently resist the dynamics of inequitable systems of power. The show includes more than 80 works by 57 artists, including works on paper, paintings, sculpture, photography, and video. Many works are on view at the Nasher for the first time, through February 13th. Also, Off the Map, the Provenance of a Painting, is an intimate exhibition that provides a case study and provenance research of a single work in the Nasher Museum's collection, Portrait of an Artist, attributed to Joseph Wright of Derby. From England to Berlin, New York to Durham, the 18th century painting has journeyed far and seen numerous owners, auction houses, and exhibitions since its creation 250 years ago, on view through January 9th. Visit nasher.duke.edu. Welcome back. Next up, Oliver Tostman joins me to discuss By Her Hand, Artemisia Gentileschi and Women Artists in Italy, 1500-1800, which he curated with Eve Straussman-Flanzer. The show is at the Wadsworth Athenaeum in Hartford through January 9th, at which point it will travel to the Detroit Institute of Arts. The exhibition explores how women artists succeeded, even though many paths to professional development and patronage were closed to them. Among the artists whose work is included in the project are Gentileschi, of course, Sofonisba Angisola, Rosalba Carriera, Lavinia Fontana, and Virginia DeVetso. The exhibition catalog, which is really good, was published by the DIA and is distributed by Yale University Press. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $40. We'll have links on manpodcast.com. Lots of good book links on the show this week. Oliver Tostman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Glad to be here. One of the interesting things about this exhibition is it captures a field substantially in formation. You know, a, a generation ago, maybe this show couldn't have been done because oeuvres had not been as identified as they are now. Why is now such a good time for an exhibition examining the work of women artists across Italy over, over several centuries.
2: There's probably hardly any other subject that has such a high relevance as the work of women artists today. We have a special interest in historical women artists at the Wadsworth because we had never given an exhibition to them and we wanted to to make good with this historic imbalance. I know the same is is true for the Detroit Institute of Arts. We also wanted to capture the moment that you just described. And I would even say that it is not just a generation ago. It is just maybe probably 10 years ago that our field has been changing so dramatically. You walk through our exhibition, if if you scroll through the catalog, you will see that many of those artworks have entered public and private collections just during the past 10 years. Think about the very recent rediscoveries of important works. I say Artemisia Gentileschi, our main heroine in the show. We at the Wadsworth, we bought her self-portrait as a lute player in 2014. That painting came on the market only in the late 1990s. Before that, it was, it was, it was virtually unknown. The same is true for the Mary Magdalene in Ecstasy, probably one of her most riveting paintings that came up on the market in 2014 and is now here and on view in the United States for the very first time. And there are so many other works that landed in the collections of private collectors since then that are truly enriching and are truly helping us to understand the, the output and the artistic creativity of women artists in such a better way today than 10 years ago, than 25 years ago or 50 years ago. One of the benchmarks of our exhibition or one of the sort of inspirations for our, our exhibition was the great ex- 1975 exhibition of about women artists, cu- co-curated by Anne Sutherland Harris and uh, Linda Knocklin And if you compare the catalogs of their show and our show, admittedly their show was much larger and was not only dealing with Italian women artists, but but nevertheless, if you look at the, the roster of Italian women artists and the numbers that they present, and if you compare them with what we now know about women artists, with the works that have come to us in the meanwhile, we just have to confess and we just have to see how much our field since then evolved and developed. And it is now this highly dynamic feel. Think about the exhibitions that took place about historic women artists just in the past five years, mainly in Europe. But still, it's definitely a topic of our time that I think speaks dearly to us today. Are
0: there shared interests or approaches that we see amongst women over
2: the course of these several centuries? Of course, there are many. It starts with their with an education that was very often similar to the degree that they were educated by family members. In rare cases, they were sent out of their homes. They were facing similar challenges within their society. They had to overcome obstacles that were probably not that different for a woman in, say, 1550 compared to a woman living in Italy in around 1750.
0: You and your co-curator, Yves Straussman-Flanzer, write that women may have made more self-portraits than men did. And included in your show are a number of women who are particularly well-known for their self-portraits. So Finisbe comes to mind. Why is it that women may have made self-portraiture a greater part of their practice than men did in these years?
2: Well, for one for one reason, they may not have had Access as easily to models as 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 male artists had, so they simply had to rely on their own likenesses for study purposes. We do know from, say, Sofonisba Anguissola that she used her likeness or many self portraits in order to promote her career at a very early stage, and that seems to be a pattern that is true for many other women artists as well. We know that. So Funisba inspired later women artists, she inspired Lavinia Fontana, we know that Artemisia Gentileschi was very much obsessed with her own likeness. She included her likeness in many of her pictures. Whether those are exactly self-portraits or not, that's that's a matter of debate. We can look at Elisabetta Sirani, we can look at artists such as Rosalba Cayera. They all depicted themselves in one way or another quite frequently. Several
0: of those artists are going to come up again
2: as we talk. Do you have a
0: favorite self-portrait or two in the show?
2: I should say that our own self-portrait is a lute player by Artemisia Gentileschi. is an incredibly fascinating painting that I feel I'm rediscovering it every time I look at it. I should also say that I'm incredibly fascinated by a small self-portrait by Safunisba Anguissola, which is on loan to us from the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, which is like a little jewel. You can hold it in your hand, not me, not you, but uh, <laughs> the contemporaneous viewer, which is to say it is small enough that it would fit within
0: either of our hands. So it's not just we're not just talking about holding it in our hands. we're talking about something of such a size that this picture would fit entirely within our hands.
2: You can leisurely hold it in your part in the. Yeah. Part of your hand. And you have to look up close at it. And you are confronted with Sophonisba, who is looking straight at you. She's at a young age. She's 18, 19. She has these wonderful large eyes. And she she looks at you in this very direct way. And you look back to her. And there's this immediate connection that you built to this uh, to this woman that lived roughly 500 years ago. In addition to that, there's this wonderful wonderful shield that she holds with uh, rich inscriptions in Latin and wonderful riddles around it. And so you start thinking about the meaning of this very enigmatic self-portrait. It's something that you will not forget once you see it.
0: Listeners may recall that Michael Cole, who um, recently wrote a book about Sophonispa titled Sophonispa's Lesson, that Michael Cole was recently on the podcast. We will have a link to that show on the show page uh, this week. You mentioned the Artemisia lute player that the Wadsworth acquired in 2014. It's a really interesting painting. There's there's kind of a Cariani eyebrow to Artemisia's, you know, she has kind of a raised eyebrow look. And it's kind of sort of between a painting of a lute player and, and a self-portrait. Is she just looking at herself Wearing a costume and an instrument, what do you think she was doing in this in this picture?
2: Artemisia is looking straight at us. We look at her eyes. She looks slightly down to us. She's very elegantly dressed, and as you said, she she's playing the lute, she's in the act of playing the lute. There is something performative about this painting. You can imagine the sound that is emanating from a lute that she is holding in a manner that looks as if she had been playing lute for for years in the past, and yet we don't have any, any record for that practice of hers. So mm-hmm. she renders herself as a lute player quite plausibly in this painting, she positions the lute in between herself and us. There is, it can function as a sort of barrier, as a sort of in-between between the viewer and her. She stages herself. She presents herself in a rich blue dress that she may have or may not have had. It's uh, painted in the most gorgeous blue. It's ultramarine, which was very expensive pigment at that time. It has these wonderful golden threads. And then on, on her head, on top of her head, she's wearing these, this, this rich, this wonderful, elegant headscarf. And so she looks at us and she, she pretends as if she's a lute player, as if she is a lute player. It is a role portrait. It's, it's the, the portrait of an artist who is disguised as a musician. Now, to which degree she disguised herself is something we don't know because she may very well be a lute player in real life. We know that she participated in, such, in, 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 certain, in certain musical activities around the Medici court in, in Florence around the time when she painted this painting between 1615, 1617. There's a record of a, a Signora Artemisia at one of those performances she may, uh, understanding her headscarf as a, uh, as a reference to this, to this Medici performance, um, she was recorded, uh, the Artemisia there was recorded as a, uh, as a gypsy. So this may be an allusion to, to a gypsy hairdress. Others see this as a more, as a reminiscence of, a, of something that's coming from the Near East as something Turkish. So I think there's a wonderful ambiguity about this, about this self portrait something that is quite unexpected. Artemisia, that looks straight at us, gives us no indication that she was a painter. She presents herself as a musician. And at the same time, she presents herself as a woman in her early 20s. She is very attractive. She's very sensual. She is not shying away on, on showing us her her décolleté on her low-cut bodice. And so I think that this, in many ways, this so-called self-portrait, sort of shows her at this very crucial moment of her career in Florence in when she was in her early 20s.
0: My favorite part of the picture might be her hands, which are spectacularly painted, and the way shadow kind of dances across her fingers in a way that suggests movement, as if her hands would be moving along the lute.
2: It's absolutely right. they so, They look so spot on. The differences between the right hand and the left hand, she's... definitely holding the lute strings it's a wonderful study of hands and it's such a high degree of of realism Mm -hmm. that comes through it of, of, of naturalism that is just speaks to her qualities of as an artist at that time you wrote an essay in the catalog about how women seem to have made
0: more small scale works than men or at least more small scale works by women have survived of course the most famous example of a small work by an artist in your show is the Sofonisba, the palm-sized Sofonisba we talked about. That's at the MFA, Boston. There's also a small self-portrait of Sofonisba in Vienna that is discussed in the catalog. So, what are some of the reasons why women might have made work at such a scale across such a
2: long time period? We don't know exactly. What seems to be the case is that small-scale painting played a different role for many women artists compared to men. Education may have been a major driver for this. Women by and large were not educated to paint large paintings at the very beginnings of their careers. Their their training was was simply was simply different. They very often had to juggle several duties at the same time. Um, a woman could have been, say, a mother she certainly was, in some capacities, the manager of the household. She just may have had lesser time in order to paint. And to paint something small helps you to finish something more quickly. It's also something that you can do easier from home. You don't need to have an extra studio space for doing that. You can do it directly from your, from your kitchen table, as so many of us today. Yeah. <laughs> There's also now no physical risk that comes to it. I mean, if you paint larger paintings, you you may have to go on a ladder, you may have to do something physical that may be risky. And uh, that is not the case at all for, for small-scale objects. But maybe more importantly is the sort of message that are sent out by small objects. Small objects are not necessarily objects that are shown in the public sphere. They are not objects that are necessarily in a highly competitive sphere. They're, in most cases, very private objects. There is a certain degree of modesty that comes with them. There is a certain jewelry aspect that comes with them. And all those were, were virtues that were, at that time, largely associated with women artists. Another reason could have been. And we spoke about the importance of self-portraits for women earlier. And it is just interesting to see how many women artists started their career with small-scale self-portraits. That for women, producing a self-portrait may have had a different importance as for male artists. But then the question for a woman artist is, how how can I bring those self-portraits, those artworks to the art market? And many, we know this from Sofonisba that her self-portraits were all sent out with the help of her father, with the help of, of the rest of her family, to important patrons and, and art collectors in northern Italy and beyond that sphere, to the rest of Italy and even beyond Italy. And so there's this distributional aspect to it, that small-scale works can be easily sort of sent away from home, and i think all these many reasons may have an influence for the uh, strong presence of small scale works in the careers of women some women started their careers with small scale works and after some years they they moved on to larger scale works other women started their careers with small-scale works and stayed on with small-scale works. And then there's a third uh, category of women that started with larger works. And very quickly, they realized that they would be more competitive and more successful as women artists if they concentrated on small-scale objects. One of the women in your show particularly distinguished herself as a
0: pastelist, if that's a word, it is now. So much so that the king of Poland devoted a whole room to her pastels in his Dresden palace. Who was she? Where did she work? And why do you think maybe pastels
2: were such a focus of a single practice, her practice? Well, that's a wonderful question. We're speaking about Rosalba Carrera here, who was a uh, European celebrity in the first decades of the 18th century. She not only had the King of Poland who collected her, she had uh, eminent collectors in France, the royal family there eminent collectors in Germany, Italy, all over Europe.
0: One of the things that's interesting to me about how widely she was collected is like, you know, we think nothing of oil paintings on copper or panel, you know, traveling across the continent, but pastels are delicate. And it seems, I don't know, what do I know? But it seems like it's less likely that that would have, that her works would have survived decades of continental transit and transport.
2: You would think so. Rosalba very much specialized on pastels during her mature career. She did not build a monopoly, and yet she she became the best known artist in Venice and certainly the best known woman artist in Europe to produce portrait after portrait after portrait in pastel. Most of her pastels, mid sized to small sized, she capitalized on technical innovations that took place at that around that time she could handle the crayons much more easily than be, than generations before and perhaps most importantly she capitalized on the invention of of glazing of glass glazing and so her pastels could be sealed with glass and therefore they could be sent away from Venice around Europe she certainly profited from the fact that she was based for large parts of her career in Venice, a place that was visited by visitors from all over Europe who would then come to her studio and would sit for her for a finite time. And they would then bring these pastels back to their homes and present them as these wonderful memorials of their their grand tours. She also had a particular career as a teacher who Who did she teach and what types of students flocked to her studio? She mainly taught other Roman artists how to become pastel artists or a miniature artist, which was the second leg of her of her business, producing miniatures. She brought a number of really talented young girls to her studio and trained them to perfectionized the medium of pastel in the same way as she did. We have a wonderful example of one of those students who recently had been one of the more famous Veduta painter, Luca Kalevades. She specialized on portraits, developed her own style that was a little bit different, a little bit distinct from, from Rosalba's style. But nevertheless, you can clearly see the influences that uh, Rosalba had on, on her pupil, Mariana Calevades
0: One of the artists in the show I did not know hardly anything about before reading the catalog was Elisabetta Serrani, who who you mentioned earlier. I was flabbergasted to read that she made 200 pictures before her death at the age of just 27, which suggests she had few hobbies. (laughs) What distinguishes her work and why was she able to be so prolific in her early to mid-20s? I mean, I, I, I imagine that most men in their early to mid-20s were, were still working in other artist studios, for
2: example. Right. She was educated by her father, who was a well-known artist at his time as well. Her father had trained in the workshop of uh, Guido Reni in Bologna. And he tragically became quickly completely overshadowed by the rapid success of his of his daughter, who by all accounts must have been a prodigy. She was a, a painter, as you mentioned. She very early on received important public commissions. She painted many, many depictions of Madonnas with children.
0: Including also, one on in the show.
2: She was also a fabulous as that She was truly exceptional among her contemporaries because she uh, produced drawings in preparation for her paintings, but those drawings already by her contemporaries were looked at as, as singular pieces of art. She did not have, unlike other women artists, unlike, say, Artemisia Gentileschi, she did not have a husband. She uh, devoted her life to the arts, and that is probably one of the main reasons why she was able to be that prolific that she was.
0: So it sounds like her
2: father, whose name was Giovanni, got out of her way and let her be the star instead of him? I think we know too little about Giovanni. We know too little about their relationship in order to, to say that. Today, he is overshadowed by her. I think that Elisabetta Scurrani uh, overall is one of the better known artists in our exhibition. There has been a uh, large exhibition of her in Bologna during the early 2000s. And then there was a beautiful small show at the Uffizi around 2016, 2017. She is definitely known in Italy as an outstanding woman artist of the 17th century, less so outside of Italy. So
0: Vanispa's father promoted her too, of course. I think the last artist I want to bring up offers a pretty good example of how art historians and curators are now working to extract her from the painterly record, if you will. And that's Virginia Devetza. Who is she, and how is it that she kind of needs to be extracted from
2: Simone Vouet? I think Virginia Davetzo stands for so many other women artists. She definitely had a reputation during her lifetime. We know an awful lot, comparatively speaking, about her life. And yet there is very little evidence, there's very little paintings or drawings that can be safely ascribed to her today. The only one contender is a wonderful Judith that is hanging hanging today in Nantes at the Musée de Beaux-Arts there. And other than that, we know shockingly little about her education. She was probably unlike many other women artists. She was educated by professional male artists, certainly by her later husband, Simon Vouet, with whom she took drawing lessons in Rome during the 1620s. They married around 1626, and they had close contact with other artists that play a very prominent role in our show, like Artemisia Gentileschi. And the reason why we wanted to have her included in the show is that she really is this sort of enigmatic artist that had a importance during her lifetime, and yet it is so hard to get artworks of her. It is so hard to to group artworks under her umbrella, if you will, and so we decided not to show an artwork by her, but an artwork by her husband Simo Vuori that shows her as the Magdalene, which resonates in a wonderful, beautiful way with with other Mary Magdalens in other in our show,
0: in which the Magdalene is wearing almost exactly what the Judith is wearing in the Tavetzo painting, and not.
2: That is a wonderful observation, Tyler. <laughs> I have not thought about before. Um, <laughs> yeah. She certainly poses in this wonderful, sensual way. Uh, she plays with her, with her left fingers, with her hair braids. Her shoulder is uncovered. It's a wonderful, sensuous portrait. Another reason why we wanted to include this portrait uh, painted by her husband is to point to the very specific dynamic of artistic couples at that time, the way how they influence each other, the importance that those couples had in the art world at that time. Virginia d'Avezzo, Simon Bouet is one example. Another example in the show is a portrait of Maria Felice Tibaldi, who is probably unknown to most of us today. She was a celebrated miniaturist painter in Rome during the mid 18th century. She was coming from a well to do artistic family. And during the early 1730s, she he came to know the French artist, Pierre Subira, who eventually married her and probably on the occasion of their marriage, he portrayed her in a wonderful portrait and a wonderful alluring portrait that is now at the Worcester Art Museum that we also show in our exhibition in which Tibaldi, not unlike Virginia DeVetso, who's posing as the Mary Magdalene. Cibaldi is is not shown to us as a a saint by any means, but she's also not really shown as an artist to us. She's shown to us as a a Roman socialite, as a beautiful woman placed in this luxurious setting, um, certainly as someone who is not immediately understood as an artist if you look at this portrait. So again, another wonderful example of this great subject of artistic couples. Oliver Totsman, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.